don't know, like when you make like a vegetable soup and you like throw all these, you know, whatever you've got in the fridge to use them up and it makes a delicious vegetable stock. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, a new podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo, and I am pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Matt Fox from Boston University. We're really excited to launch this new monthly podcast focused on epidemiologic methods. Serious Epi is going to focus interviews with leading epidemiologists who are experts on cutting-edge and novel methods. Our conversations will focus on why these methods are so important, what problems they help solve, and how they're currently being used. The podcast is aimed at helping epidemiologists continue their learning in epi methods, and so is targeted at advanced master's students, doctoral students, postdocs, and even faculty or practicing epidemiologists out in the world. And if we're being totally honest, it's a chance for us to ask experts the questions we're still confused about despite all of our time working in epi methods and teaching methods courses. So today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Eleanor Murray from Boston University to Sirius Epi. You may know her as Epi Ellie from Twitter who posts these terrific tutorials and infographics about important topics related to epidemiology and public health. Her research is focused on causal inference methods for improving evidence-based decision-making by patients, clinicians, and policymakers. Ellie also hosts a podcast called Casual Inference, which talks about all things epidemiology, statistics, data science, causal inference, and public health. So we're fortunate to have Ellie here today to talk to us about the concept of time in epidemiologic research and ask her questions related to time-dependent analyses. So welcome, Ellie. Hi, glad to be here. Great. So we're excited to have you. But before we get into the really hard stuff, we like to ask some lighter questions so everyone can get to know you a bit better. We'll start off really easy. Tell us about your favorite food or drink. My favorite drink is absolutely coffee. Mm, me too. I fully support that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a total coffee addict. So you sent me the questions beforehand. I was looking at them and I'm not quite sure what it says about me that these actually seem like harder questions to answer. <laughs> But I think maybe my favorite food is black licorice. Oh, wow. That was totally unexpected. It was great having you on the podcast. I think we're done. That's all we really need to know. Wow, that's such an interesting choice. Is it always, as a kid, did you like black licorice? Oh, yeah. I love black licorice. Yeah. Oh, we would have been the best of friends. We could have, like, split a bag of jelly beans, and you could have had all those black ones that I, like, threw on the floor. I can't believe these are included in the bag. Gosh. <laughs> oh, that was the best when somebody didn't like the black jelly beans. Oh, <laughs> Score. Well, I don't know. Wow. I'll know what to send you. If you receive a bag of random black candies, <laughs> you'll know who sent it to you. Fantastic. Matt is really in shock. He's actually speechless, which is amazing for Matt Fox. That never happens. I don't even know what to do with this information. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just disturbed. <laughs> I don't know why you're so surprised. I talk about black licorice quite a lot on Twitter. I know. The thing is, that now that you say it, I do remember it. But every time, it's equally as shocking. <laughs> yeah. I suppose we'll still keep you because you're an expert in time-dependent methods, but that's, that's quite the way to start this podcast. I'm excited to go on now. So uh, moving on from that surprise, uh, tell us about one place you'd love to travel to or it's on your travel bucket list in the post-COVID world. Yeah. So one place I've always wanted to go, there's this town in northern Manitoba, Churchill, where the polar bears come polar into bears, town. Polar bears, yes. 
and I have always wanted to go there. And that's like my ultimate dream destination. I want to go and see the polar bears walking around. I'm so with you. I would love to go on that trip with you because I also have a dream of going to see the polar bears. It's shockingly expensive. It's so expensive. Also, it only happens in October and that's not a great time for vacation. But yes, mostly the problem is shockingly expensive. And there's a little bit of a fear of getting eaten by a polar bear. Just a little bit. Yeah, it's not not entirely without risk. But I mean, these days, what is? So How, How often do people get eaten by polar bears? Probably not very often. I mean, it depends if you're leaning out of the car to poke at them or if you're staying securely indoors and watching through the window. I'm going to assume that you wouldn't lean out and poke at polar bears. Wouldn't you want to know what their fur feels like? Like it looks Um, soft, but it might be really coarse and dirty and yucky. Yeah, I probably would not poke a polar bear. (laughs) I wouldn't either, but I might pat. I will extend the harm reduction principles that I've been talking Mm. about to viewing polar bears. Good idea. (laughs) That's that's very logical of you. All right. I like that. And finally, in our, our sort of easy question list, we like to ask all of our guests, what do you think is the coolest bias out there? The coolest bias? Oh, man. This is not an easy question. I don't know why this is your easy question. This is the <laughs> toughest question. I think that the most mind-bending bias is collider bias. I think the biggest bias is having a wrongly aligned time zero. Mm. So I think it would be between two of those. I can't decide which of those things is cooler. Uh, Yeah, I support that. And that's an excellent lead in to the questions we're going to talk about today about time. So I guess starting to think about questions related to time, to start off, why should we care about or, or consider time in our research? Why is it so important? I think it's important because everything that we're interested in is changing all the time. To not consider time in epi research would, I don't know, to me that would be like not considering space in geography. It's sort of the fundamental of everything we do is that health and well-being changes over time, exposures change over time, disease processes change over time. Even if everything's going right, our you know health is changing just by aging. So I think time is inextricable part of everything that we study. And so can I ask you a question? So one of the things that I think a lot about is when we're taught intro to epi, we're often taught that you want to measure person time because people can be followed for different amounts of person time. And so in some ways, it makes more sense to talk about rates than risk. I have never bought into that idea. To me personally, I want to know about my risk of something because that's a concept that I can grasp as I try to live my daily life, whereas rates uh, much harder to do. What is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think rates are hard to think about from an individual level, but even with a risk, you don't want to just sort of know your risk right the second. You want to know your risk over some time frame. Yep. You know, it's not interesting to know you know, the classic example, cumulative incidence of mortality over 200 years is not really interesting. It doesn't help anybody make any decisions. Sure. So there's there's always some time factor, even when you're thinking about risks. And actually, I think in a lot of ways, time is even more important there because a, a lot of the person time methods we use, the assumption is that any unit of person time is equivalent to any other unit of person time. And so in some ways, even though time is like right in there, you're kind of abstracting away the issue of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a risk, you're talking about a specific defined time period. 
I think that's a really good point in the risk versus rate discussion. People will often say with risk, you're not considering time, but that's actually not true. You are considering it just in a less explicit person time way. You're talking about over two years or five years or whatever the period you're talking about. It's still in there just in a different way. So I think that's a really good point to raise. Right. And I think, you know, one of the ways I analogize those is if you're talking about risk, you can think about like in a car, like the distance you travel, it would be over some defined period of time is going to affect how, how far you can travel. And then the rate is like how what speed you're traveling at. And you can have the speed you're at just the second or you have the average speed you're traveling for that hour or whatever the time unit is. And and depending on, on how you conceptualize that time unit for the rate, it's going to change your measurement of that, too. And so if I asked you how long is it going to take or how far is it to, I don't know. Manitoba. How far is it to Manitoba? (laughs) And you told me, well, if you drove for 20 hours, it would need an average speed of whatever miles per hour. That's not really going to be that useful to me. Probably what I'd rather know is what is the distance. The distance is 46,000 polar bears. (laughs) Ellie and I talk in kilometers, and I know you talk in miles. Nobody talks in polar bears. <laughs> Can we pause the serious questions for a moment and get into the fact that it did not occur to me. First of all, it's probably worth pointing out that I'm I'm talking to two Canadians. That's right. And mm-hmm. so I did not realize that I would be dealing with different spellings in our outlines of things. <laughs> That had never occurred to me. I deal with this all the time with colleagues in in other countries like England and South Africa, but I never realized the differences with Canadian and U.S. Spelling, yes. Yeah, and it could be kind of problematic. I I had a very hard time the first time I taught TA Biostats class because they were learning in lecture about Z-scores, and then I got Mm. to lab and I started talking to them about Z-scores. And after like half an hour of really confused faces, someone put up their hand and was like, what is a (laughs) Z-score? And I was like, you've been learning about them in class. And they were like, no, the teacher only talked about Z-scores. And then we had to have a long discussion (laughs) about Canada versus the US. Yes, it never fails in a meeting when I say, you know, like X, Y, and Z. And they're like, what? I'm like, okay, it's not that different. You understood my concept. You don't need to make an issue of it. Who's yeah. Zed? I don't know Zed. Just focus on the X and the Y then. You don't need to make fun of me for the Zed. Okay. Okay, back to serious topics. When you answered the first question, Ellie, you talked about how basically in everything we are measuring, it is changing over time. Uh, we most often have time-varying exposures or covariates or I suppose outcomes, but many times we ignore this fact. We measure something at a particular time point because that's what we are doing in our study. And so what do you think are the implications of failing to account for this in our research? And, and what do you think are some better strategies for, for doing so? So I think that Really, the data that we have, how often it's measured, whether it's even measured more than once, and how we analyze it, that really informs what kind of questions we can ask. So if we are just measuring things at one point in time, then really all we can do is describe what we're seeing at that time point. But we can't answer questions about how those things relate in terms of you know, whether one causes another or even whether one would predict another happening later on, because we don't have those multiple time points. So how we measure or how frequently we measure is definitely going to restrict what kinds of questions we can answer. And then even when we do have measurements that vary over time, a lot of, especially the cohort studies, those measurements are, are pretty far apart. They may be two years or five years apart. And 
we actually have a paper led by Jessica Young that was, came out on this last year that basically showed that once you went beyond 12 months, you really can't capture any of the time varying confounding with those such large intervals. And so we really need to be measuring data as frequently as possible and not just like once at baseline, once at the end of follow-up that's like six years later or something like that. So I think there's a whole sort of spectrum of how much data we can collect over time, but the less data we collect, the less we can really do with it. And so just so I'm understanding the paper you're describing, um, so if you have data that are measured more than a year apart, that's not an appropriate approach to control for that time varying confounding? Yeah, so this was like a simulation paper where we had like the truth and we simulated time varying confounding and then we had the complete data but then dipped into it at different time points and we can see is if your data is measured like a month apart or three months apart, you can do a great job controlling for the time varying confounding. Once you get six months, it's like a little bit less. 12 months, it's still like okay, but beyond that, really, it starts to be a problem where you have just too much residual confounding. And this was in like a relatively simple example where we didn't have like a lot of really complicated confounding, uh, but you still see it. And so, you know, in some of these cohort studies where they're measuring things every two years or every five, five years, that's probably not enough to keep track of these time varying confounders. Okay, so if you do a study like that, a simulation study like that, and you learn that if we're in these complicated scenarios where we have time-dependent confounding, which is probably always, and we're ignoring it much of the time. I mean, do you just get depressed like I do, thinking <laughs> about how we're ever going to actually control confounding? Yes and no. I mean, I think what we see in sim the simulations is that time-dependent confounding can happen, that we can have treatment confounder feedback over time, and if we don't control for it properly, that can induce collider bias. But... In practice, what we see is that even with really rich data sets, it doesn't really change our answer that much to control for time varying confounding versus to just control for baseline confounding. And that's not to say that it doesn't help. There definitely is time varying confounding we need to worry about. But a lot of times, the other types of biases we have have bigger impacts. So differential loss to follow up, inappropriately aligned baseline, time zero immortal time bias, those things tend to be bigger problems than time varying confounding, at least in the ex actual practical examples that I have worked on. So that brings up my next question, which is, you know, most often, many times, people only have confounders measured at baseline. And so they say, you know, we recognize this changes over time, but it's a simplification or it's, you know, good enough for, for controlling the purpose, you know, of our confounding concerns. Do you buy that? Do you think that that is an appropriate approach to take? So I think that if you have only confounders measured at baseline, then you should probably restrict yourself to asking questions about exposures that happen at baseline. And so initiating treatment versus not initiating treatment or initiating exposure A versus exposure B or discontinuing A versus discontinuing B. Because if those if those changes are happening at baseline, then if you've got baseline confounders, you don't have to worry about time varying confounding for those because exposure is just at baseline. And so I would say that really, if you don't have those time varying confounders, you want to start by asking a baseline question. And so you can then look at how that outcome evolves over time, but you're comparing it just to this time point of exposure where you do feel like you have the confounding for. And then if you 
that are really more interested in longitudinal exposure questions, you want to think really carefully about how, you know, are there any kinds of proxies you can get to reduce some of the confounding? Because there is going to be almost always some confounding. If there's confounding at baseline, there will be confounding after baseline because those things don't go away. And a lot of the time, the confounders are caused by the exposure itself. And so I'm, I'm very hesitant to, if I see a study that has looking at is looking at some like longitudinal time varying exposure but isn't com considering time varying confounding then i'm not going to treat that like these are really telling us much but just because you don't have the time varying confounders doesn't mean you can't ask baseline questions right and i guess in some ways it also depends on the substantive topic that you're talking about and really how quickly some of the variables are changing you know something like you know i study older adults and, and smoking status i mean if you are age 65 it is very unlikely you are going to start smoking it's also probably pretty unlikely you're going to quit smoking completely you know so those things might be considered stable but in other variables um, hemoglobin a1c for example or bmi even you know things that are known to change very sharply as you age, you know, those might be have a totally different conversation about confounding compared to something like smoking. So it depends on your research area too, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that sometimes the baseline confounder is so strongly associated with the time varying value of the confounder that baseline confounding could serve as a proxy for time varying confounding. And so I think that there will be some some cases where at least for some variables that that's the case. And I think yeah, your example of smoking in older adults is probably a good example of when that would be true. Yeah, sometimes I see papers that do fancy things to control for time-varying confounding, and I would like there to be, a, you know, another column in their table that just showed me what it would look like if they had just controlled for that variable at one point. Not The fancy method, obviously, is not that impressive when it doesn't actually matter if you use it or not. Yeah, so one of the things I always try to do is present, you know, there's the main results in the paper, and then usually there's an appendix with a bazillion different, <laughs> the technical term, sensitivity analyses, where I'll have different, for example, if I'm doing something like inverse probability weighting, I'll have a variety of different options for weights models, maybe weights models that include minimal sets of confounders versus all the confounders. I'll provide the answer if you don't run it with the weights. I might have, if I have, for example, exposure weights and Lost to follow-up weights, I might give the answer with just one of each of those, and in the main table it would be both, so that you know you can kind of see where all those different assumptions that I'm making, I'm kind of varying them, so you can see. Hopefully, it's really not that sensitive to those changes, but if it is, then that's sort of a signal that you know you need to think very carefully about if the assumption you're using is the right one. That reminds me of a comment Matt made to me probably two years ago now about censoring weights and that he often finds that it doesn't really matter what you put in the censoring weights. They typically or many cases don't often make a huge impact on the effect estimate. I, I know there are examples where they do. I know Jen Weave has one of my most favorite papers on that topic on smoking and Alzheimer's disease from 2012. Well, I actually, to be fair, I, if I said that, which I probably did, I think I was actually just parroting what Ellie had said to me. So I think I actually got that from you. Am, am I wrong? I mean, in my experience... Well, it comes full circle. <laughs> in my experience, that is the case. But I thought that I had been validated in that by you, Ellie. So, yeah, it is possible that you got that from me. Something that's really interesting about censoring weights is that sometimes they don't really matter, but with treatment weights, if we're talking about inverse probability weights, with treatment weights, we have 
two options, right? We can have stabilized weights and unstabilized weights. They should both give us the same answer, but one should have better variance because they're both trying to give us basically an answer to the same question. The unstabilized weights are telling us what would happen in a pseudopopulation where everyone gets exposure one versus a pseudopopulation where everyone gets exposure two. And the stabilized weights are kind of telling us what would happen if we compare a pseudopopulation or we compare like the exposed and unexposed in a pseudopopulation where exposure is random with the frequency that we observe in our data. And the idea is those are the same question. But when we think about that in terms of censoring weights, they're not necessarily actually always the same question. So when we think about unstabilized censoring weights, it's what would happen if no one were lost to follow up. But stabilized censoring weights are what would happen if loss to follow-up were random, but at the distribution that we see in the population. And there are some examples where actually that makes a difference. So I think one of the kind of interesting examples is for the book Causal Inference, What If, I guess now it's called, by Miguel Hernan and Jamie Robbins. They use this data set there, um, the NHEFS, and one of the examples they use a lot in that is looking at smoking cessation. And for all of the analyses in that book, it really doesn't make a huge difference what method you use, except when you use stabilized versus unstabilized censoring weights. Mm. And it's not necessarily clear from a conceptual reason why that would be, except I think it's potentially coming from the fact that these pseudopopulations are not necessarily ones that we 100% expect to be the same, that they're not necessarily asking the same question. Whereas with treatment weights, we think those are asking the same question, whether we stabilize or don't. That is an excellent example. I've used censoring weights many times, always stabilized, but really never understood that distinction. Just for the um, listeners, can you just describe briefly what the difference is between stabilized and unstabilized? So an unstabilized weight, the denominator is the probability of receiving the exposure or censoring status that you have, and the numerator is one. So it's just the inverse of the probability of either treatment or censoring. And when we stabilize, we add in a numerator, which is, it can be a whole bunch of, there's a lot of different kinds of numerators. If we're talking about just a single time point of exposure, the numerator could just be the overall probability of exposure or the overall probability of censoring. If we're talking about time varying, then it's usually conditional on baseline covariates and um, the whole history of exposure. That's great, thank you. I learned something, see? Here we come back to the purpose of this podcast. Never mind the listeners, I'm learning a lot right now. <laughs> okay, so we talk a lot about confounding in epidemiology. It's it's basically one of these obsessive topics that people will inevitably ask you about. But I think we still struggle in observational research to remove all of the confounding, and especially when we're talking about time-dependent structures, it's even harder to remove the confounding. So how well do you think we do with the methods we have to address these time-dependent confounding structures? So I think it's difficult to say, right? Because we have to make so many assumptions to actually use these methods in real data. And we don't actually know what the true answer is in real data, so we can't really tell. But I think the sort of next best thing from knowing what the right answer is, is to compare different methods that make different assumptions and see how similar or different the answers are. And I think, you know, we have several examples of questions now where they've been answered using observational data with inverse probability weights, with the parametric G formula, they've been answered in randomized trials, and the conclusion Conclusion is pretty close to the same in all cases. And so maybe we're not completely getting rid of all of the 
time varying confounding, but we're doing a reasonable job of at least getting us to a place where that we can rely on the inference from it. But I just want to sort of say, I think it's good that you talked about it in terms of getting rid of confounding, because I hear a lot of times people talking about it in a sense of balancing the confounders. And then people start thinking about, well, what if I check the balance of my confounders in my pseudo population? Will that tell me if I've done a good job? And it's tricky because the goal isn't to balance the confounders. The goal is to remove the confounding. Right. And it's possible that we could remove the confounding without balancing the confounders. And it's also possible we could balance the confounders without removing the confounding. And I'm, I'm curious, we say that you can remove the confounding without balancing the confounders and vice versa. Do we think that happens, though, in practice a lot? Or is that just sort of more of a theoretical possibility that it could happen? I think it's probably more likely that we balance the confounders that we've included but haven't removed confounding than the other way around. And so in that sense, maybe having a large imbalances is a signal you need to think about something else, but having balanced confounders maybe is not really, a, should not be taken as a reassuring signal that you're doing the right thing because you could be missing important confounders. But I, I, I think this is a little tricky to answer, I think, because there's sort of two camps of people, those that balance and those that don't, or check for balance and those that don't. And so I, I have never checked my weights for balance in terms of the confounders. Instead, I check what is the distribution of the weights? Do they have the expected mean? Is the variance not too bad? Are the 99th, 95th percentiles really huge or not? And think about it from that direction. It's funny because I'm in your camp, Ellie, using those distribution-related metrics. Almost always, I will receive a comment from a reviewer asking me to demonstrate the balance. And I've had it at least two or three times. And it's a frustrating topic because, like you say, there's there's two camps of people. There's people that really firmly believe that this is, you know, an appropriate strategy. And as an author, I'm not going to get into a battle with you, the reviewer, about whether this is an appropriate strategy. So I just kind of throw it in and move on and say, look, it's fine, you know? But I guess I've never run into a situation where there really isn't balance. And I don't know what I would do about that as an author. Yeah, I usually push back on those reviews. <laughs> They're pretty easy to, to give into. Like, I need to save my pushback for other things, usually. You can only push back on so many topics, you know. I'm not answering this one or this one or this one. Can you, though? I push back on a lot of things in reviews. Maybe that's why it takes me so long for my papers to get published. There may be a correlation there, but, I, you know, I, I, I'm just speculating right now. Something to do with that. It could be the black licorice. Oh, yeah. Really hard to say. I had forgotten about that, Matt. <laughs> I, I literally just got the black licorice taste in my mouth and like gave a little cringe. You're welcome. <laughs> More black licorice for me. Perfect. That's just perfect. You and my father-in-law, you guys can have a little club. <laughs> okay, so huh, back to serious topics again. Matt, you seem to, to drag us back. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, so last year at SCR, if you'll recall, in 2019, there was this really great, I think it was a symposium, about bias and which is the most important, I think it was called baddest of the bad, which which bias is the baddest of the bad. And these different uh, experts were giving their case for what is the most important type of bias. And I went into that session a firm believer in selection bias as the most important bias or collider bias as the most as the most pernicious kind of baddest of the bad. But I thought Rob Platt made a very convincing argument for why time-related biases are really under-recognized or under-discussed. So 
Can you sort of help us understand the different categories or the different types of of crime-related biases that we should be worrying about? Okay, now you're getting into hard questions. (laughs) (laughs) Told you we went from simple to complex. (laughs) So I guess the easiest one, I think, to understand is this issue of time zero. And that's kind of related to immortal time bias, but they're like a little bit different. But when you're thinking about time zero, the idea is, are you starting the clock? for everyone at the same time if you're interested in following up to see what happens at some later time. And so if we think about running a randomized trial, we would never just toss out the first year of the trial from one arm but not the other. We always make sure everybody starts the clock at the same time. But that's something in observational research often we don't think about. Instead, we start the clock at the time of exposure. But the reason people get exposed to different things may differ based on what their health status is or something. And so sometimes people get exposed systematically later to one thing or systematically earlier to another thing. And this can affect the types of outcomes you see in those groups if you start the clock at exposure. And so then the, the related piece to that is sort of the idea of things like immortal time, where you actually require a certain group to survive for some amount of time event-free in order to be eligible for the study, whereas the other group doesn't have that restriction. And this basically depletes the high-risk people from that one group because it throws out all of these events that happen before you're allowing them into the study from that group, but not from the other group. And that's sort of, again, maybe kind of like intertwined also with the idea of like a prevalent user bias where somebody has to be using for a long time to get recorded as a prevalent user, whereas if they used it for a week and they stopped because they were having side effects, then they wouldn't be very likely to show up as a prevalent user in your study versus new users who at least are hopefully closer to starting at the same time. But then you kind of go back to the problem of time zero. So there's this sort of whole kind of complicated relationship between, you know, why is somebody starting treatment or getting exposed? What time in their life is that happening at? How does that relate to how their risk of the outcome is kind of changing over time. Those things are kind of all intertwined. So I think those are sort of the three main ones that sort of come up with like, when does the study start? And then I'm not sure what Rob Platt included in that, but then you have, you know, time varying confounding and time varying loss to follow up. And then you also have questions about when does the study end? And that I think you could make a case that things like competing events also fall under a category of time related biases because, for example, if I'm interested in cardiac death and someone in my study dies from pneumonia, they're no longer at risk of cardiac death. And how I decide to treat that is going to have implications for what answer I get. And it's related to the fact that given that they they died earlier from one cause, they're no longer eligible to die later from another cause. So I think you could argue that those are time related as well. But I don't know if Rob Platt did. <laughs> in the, I think it was only a five-minute presentation, so he mainly covered the time zero and immortal time. But I agree with you. I mean, I think all of those fall under the very, very large umbrella of time-related biases. And in particular, I really struggle with the competing risks problem. And it's going to be the subject of a whole other podcast because I think it deserves more recognition, you know, speaking of biases that don't get talked about enough. So when you talk about um, lining things up at time zero, I've heard you and others talk about in the context of randomized trial, how we think about this, but there are so many exposures where they're interesting exposures and important exposures to study, but it's just not possible to line up 
time zero. You know, obesity research or nutritional research, if you're studying someone in midlife, you're not going to have the start of their exposure right there. So what do people do with exposures like that? So I think this is where stepping back and thinking what is the goal or the purpose of your study is important. We don't need to worry about lining up time zero if we're trying to describe. You know, we want to study individuals who in middle life, how their experiences with food and weight over their life course. We don't have to worry about like lining everyone up at the same time. We can just sort of describe those trajectories as we have the data on them. And that can be an interesting thing thing to do. And I'm sure we would learn a lot from doing that. But that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about cause and effect, because that's not the goal of that study. It's to sort of give us a more richer picture of what kind of is happening in people's lives. The next thing we could try to do is make some predictions. So we might want to say, okay, there's an individual that's coming in for an annual checkup around their 40th birthday. And we want to predict their risk of heart disease in the future so that we can think about what kinds of things we might want to offer them as services going forward. And there, you know, now you, you you would like to have as much information as possible up to that visit. And so you could think about that visit as time zero, but it probably doesn't make much difference if that visit is like the day of their 40th birthday or 11 months later, or even 24 months later, because probably things in their life aren't really changing that much over that time frame. And so, again, it's sort of useful to have some kind of benchmark to say this prediction applies to these group of people, and those people are probably going to be defined by some time-varying characteristic of the group, but it's not necessarily quite as important to have time zero. Where time zero comes in is if we want to make cause and effect, a causal effect estimate, if we want to know about if I take this action, how much can I expect the outcome to change versus if I take this other action, you need to be able to line up time zero for everyone so that everybody is starting follow-up at the time that the earliest possible time the action can be taken, right? At the time that the decision to take the action would be made. And so if the action is have surgery for your knee now versus wait six months, you don't want to start the second group's follow-up six months later. You want to start them at the time that the decision to wait six months was made. And so that's the way I like to think about it, that time zero is really thinking about like what decision are you trying to inform with your causal effect estimate? And when does that decision have to be made? And who is that decision made by? And that will tell you when time zero should start and what information might be available at time zero to make that decision. And those things are what are going to inform how you then structure your question. That's a It's a really helpful framework for thinking about those different kinds of questions that you could ask. But also, even within the causal world, it seems to me, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, that you could also ask different kinds of questions about the types of decisions. So Haley was talking about studying obesity, and it's true that you are probably not going to be able to know the entire history of a person's BMI over time. But if the relevant question is, if I change my BMI as of today, whatever age I am today and whatever history I have today, that would be it seemingly the most relevant question. Now, you can never answer that for everyone because everyone's got a different age slash history or large groups of people are not going to be all in the same group. But it seems to me those are the types of questions we want to be asking. We just can't. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yes and no. I mean, I think maybe we kind of think we'd like to ask the question, what if an individual whose BMI is 25, what if their BMI was 20 instead as of today? But that's not really a question that can actually inform us to take any action. 
what we would actually want to be able to tell that person is if you took these actions then there's a good chance that your bmi will get down to 20 and that all of these other health benefits will accrue and some of those health benefits may accrue regardless of whether or not the bmi actually changes for that individual and i think in a lot of cases we think about it like contrasting two levels of an exposure but it's actually really one of the levels is an outcome that we're hoping to achieve and we're hoping to achieve it because we think it's on the causal pathway to other outcomes and so it really doesn't necessarily make sense to think about changing that today because we have no way to change your BMI today, except with the, the example of like chopping off certain inches of height or adding inches of height. That makes so much sense to me. We think about, I guess in that case, BMI is really the mediator we're interested in. And it may only be one of the, as you say, may be only one of the many mediators we're interested in on the pathway to some health outcome. It seems to me though, often when people try to ask questions around various exposures for which they've got data and can categorize people into groups, they're sort of thinking about it as, well, I want to know about the effect of something that has already happened as opposed to a change we could make going into the future. So if your BMI is at a certain level compared to some other level, then your outcome is likely to be at this level versus some other level. And I can see why those are questions people want to know the answers to, but it seems to me it doesn't necessarily tell us the thing that we'd really want to know, which is what happens if we, if we take action to change it. On the other hand, not everything can be changed. And so we still need to think about how do we ascribe causation and determine the effects of things that we can't necessarily change. But for many things we can, and those, it seems like we, we do want to think about the questions that relate to change. Yeah. And I think, so, I mean, as you said, a lot of times people are interested in some effect of a change in the past. And I think what you see is in studies where people actually are thinking about it like that, you see that they have some baseline time point where people had one level of the variable. Then they said, okay, you have to get to this other time point where that variable changes. And then we're going to look at you at a third time point. And I think, you know, that's sort of a key feature is if you're going to look at the effect of a change, you have to have at least three time points. And when what we see is a lot of studies talk about it as if they're looking at the effect of change and they only have two time points. So they're comparing people at one level at baseline versus people at a different level at baseline neither of whom have ex necessarily experienced any change in their values for possibly their entire lives. And then they're comparing the outcome and that's not useful for cause and effect. But I think when, you know, when we're thinking about like, okay, we have something like BMI or blood pressure or something, and we can see there are some people that their value, you know, we start everyone at a particular value. We look and see who has by a year later gotten to a different value. And we compare those people who had a change to the people who didn't have a change. Now we kind of have this, a little bit more complicated question because if we didn't give any instructions for how that change happened, the best we can kind of hope for in terms of the current way we conceptualize cause and effect in epidemiology is to learn about basically a weighted average causal effect of all of the ways mm -hmm. that people in those studies, in that study, did change or did not change their exposure over time. And the weights are whatever the distribution of those different ways are in the population. It's weighted over then all the causal effects of all of those different ways of changing or not changing your exposure. But we don't know what those are and we don't know what the weights are. And so it's very hard to take that and apply it to another population. 
and say, well, we saw this happen here in this study. We believe the cause and effect estimate that we have here, but we don't necessarily know what it means to the others for the other study. And then there's kind of an extra complication that if we don't even understand why people's weight did or didn't change, how can we possibly guarantee to ourselves that we understand the confounding for that? Mm. And so a scenario like this, we say that the exposure is not well-defined and the implication is that often the confounding is also not well-defined. And so now, even if we were happy with estimating this weighted average causal effect, which sometimes we are, and actually I have a paper um, with some people in Rotterdam that is estimating a weighted average causal effect for blood pressure, we have to then pay really special attention to justifying why we think we can estimate that validly, why we can control for confounding for that. Yeah, I think those comments raise two really excellent points. So the first, you know, when you're talking about this weighted average, in my head, I use the very technical term intervention soup <laughs> to describe what the, you know, this mix of um, all of these different interventions is, you know, because you don't know what the effect is. And likewise, in a giant right. pot of soup, you just don't know what's what the various components are. So so I always think of that as intervention soup for some reason. What kind of soup do you eat? I don't know. Like when you make like a vegetable soup and you like throw all these, you know, whatever you've got in the fridge to use them up and it makes a delicious vegetable stock. I still hope you know what's in there. No, I do. But like, do I know that the deliciousness is from the carrots? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Do I know that the... In any particular spoonful. Yeah, Ellie's exactly right. In any spoonful, you don't know if the deliciousness is due to the carrots or the onions or the peppers that I added, but it's still delicious, right? And so that's where I think of this as intervention soup. So, and, um, you know, the second point related to what you were talking about, Ellie, is is we talk a lot, or, you know, when you read papers about causal inference and estimating causal effects, we talk a lot about well-defined intervention. And very uh, infrequently, do people talk about the implications of that for confounding structures? And, you know, I think in some research areas, perhaps it doesn't matter as much, you know, when you have confounders that, you know, you know, you're going to include basically regardless of, of the specific data that you have. But in other areas, you know, knowing the specific exposure has really important implications for what confounders you include. So I think that there should be like an addendum to that assumption that people always talk about, about well-defined exposures, because therefore it also affects your confounding structures. Yeah, no, I mean, so I have a set of slides that I include in talks on this, that it's always first, the problem is your exposure. And then second, the problem is your confounding. And I think that's totally true. And I agree, sometimes it's not gonna matter that much because in order for something to cause confounding, it has to be related to both the exposure and the outcome. And if you feel like you've got a really good handle on all of the causes of the outcome, then it may not really matter that you don't understand all of the causes of the exposure because you could just adjust for the causes of the outcome and then that would block up the confounding paths. But if you really don't have a good handle on either of them, then you're really gonna be in trouble when you haven't specified how the exposure is happening. Right, that's a good point. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about something you raised earlier, which is about how sometimes the question you're asking can lead to time-related biases. You know, so questions about ever using versus never using a particular medication or, you know, initiators versus non-initiators or treatment treated versus untreated. You know, a famous example of this is about uh, related to the controversy on hormone replacement therapy use and, and you know, the different examples uh, from observational research showing HRT was protective against cardiovascular disease and then there were some clinical trials work that showed that there was a potential risk of harm. So how do we avoid these time-related biases in the questions that we're asking? 
Yeah, so I think this is where like the target trial framework really helps. We think about who is the population that we're interested in making a decision about, who would be eligible if we were going to do a trial, when would follow-up start, what would we assign people to that can help us inform our, our interventions, even if they're hypothetical interventions. You know, what is the outcome we would measure in the trial and how frequently would we measure things? Thinking about it from that standpoint can help. And, you know, with the HRT example, that's, you know, what we saw is when the observational data was reanalyzed, thinking about the target trial in mind actually gave the same answers as the randomized trial. And so the problem wasn't that the observational data can't give those answers. It's that the way it was analyzed initially was asking a different question. And when you ask different questions, you should expect to get different answers. So I think that that's an important thing to remember. And that also maybe, I don't know if this is too much of a deviation, but also something to think about there is that even in a trial, there are different questions we can ask. And so we can ask about the effect of randomization and we can ask about the effect of treatment that you actually receive. And observational studies are more likely to tell us about the effect of treatment you actually received because we generally don't have an observational analog of randomization. And so even when we do everything sort of perfectly in a target trial framework approach for an observational study, we may not recover the same thing as an intention to treat effect in a trial if the intention to treat effect of that trial was very different from the effect of actually receiving the treatment. Just for for those who might not be as familiar with the the target trial or emulating a target trial, can you just briefly explain that idea to us and how it can be used to prevent some time-related biases? Yes, it's not even really a new idea. I think there's references from like the 40s that kind of talk about, oh, if you're going to do an observational study, think about how you would run a trial and structure it like that. And that's really all the target trial framework is, is first imagine the trial that you would like to run to answer the question that you want answered. What would that trial look like? Who would be enrolled? Who, you know, how would it be conducted? When would follow-up start? How would you randomize? What would you randomize people to? How would you define the outcome? What things would you think about measuring for subgroups? All of that kind of stuff that you would think about if you were making a protocol for a randomized trial. And then once you have that, you want to go to the observational data that you have or observational data that you can collect and think about how do you match up as closely as possible between your observational data and this ideal trial you would like to do. And so sometimes that's easier and sometimes it's harder. It's especially tricky if the observational data is already collected, so you don't have necessarily the flexibility to make changes. But if you're if you haven't yet collected the observational data, there's lots of ways you can try to get as close as possible to the target trial. But, you know, thinking about should you be restricting to a certain subset of your cohort study that matches the eligibility criteria that you're really interested in? When is that decision going to be made? And and so when should baseline start? Are you thinking about a initiate versus don't initiate or initiate A versus initiate B versus some more longitudinal intervention? And what does that look like? What would be the protocol if it was a time-bearing intervention in a trial? Would there be stopping criteria for the medication? Like all of those things you want to think about and try to line them up. And usually, you know, what I do and what I have students do is like literally write out a table with a protocol of a trial and then what they would like to do in the emulation. And then if there's things that conflict and they can't actually do that because they don't have the data, then we start to figure out, okay, what is the new trial that we're emulating based on the data that we have and kind of go back and forth until we have a situation where this is the trial we would like, you know, we're targeting. This is the analysis that we're doing in our observational study. And that helps us then understand what question we're asking and what to do with the answer. 
Yeah, that's very helpful, you know, for uh, explaining this as a concept. Do you think that part of why the emulating a target trial framework is so helpful is that it just makes things more explicit, you know, for people? You really have to think through a lot of different dimensions that you just don't think through when you're, you know, just asking a question using randomized or sorry, using observational data. And, and do you think that part of it is just, you know, thinking through those explicit parameters? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, well, so I think there's two things that are useful. One is that when you're working with like clinical collaborators, a lot of them are much more familiar with randomized trials than observational studies. And so from that point of view, it can be really helpful just to design a target trial with the collaborators and then come back and do the observational emulation plan yourself and then check with them if there's like disagreements. And so I think that can be one really big benefit of it in sort of applied cases. But I also think, yeah, it it forces you to be really explicit about what the question you're answering is. And I think, you know, a lot of times people will sort of say to me, oh, my question isn't amenable to a target trial. And it's like, okay, if you can't even imagine a trial that would answer your question, why do you think your question is asking about a causal effect? And what were you hoping to do with that information? And a lot of times in those discussions, people realize, well, actually, what I really wanted to do was to inform this particular clinical decision over here. I just had this data that looked like this, and I thought I could use it, and that it would tell me something about that. But actually, I can do this completely other analysis with data treated in a different way that will actually specifically target that question. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, this is, that's like the best case scenario. Sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, I've got to go completely find other data, or I have to just own up to the fact that the answers I'm getting with the analysis I'm doing and the data I have are just descriptive or are just hypothesis generating, and they're not giving me any answers that can inform decisions. I mean, I think you're so right about that. And it seems to me that we have done a real disservice in not teaching people how to ask questions and what the resulting data analysis you would have to do to answer that question is, because people get very locked into this idea that I, I'm answering the question that I think I'm answering and will push back when you try to say, actually, I don't think your analysis is answering the question that you think you are. So I think we have created this problem for ourselves in the way that we teach data analysis separate from study design and asking questions. Yeah. And I mean, do we even really teach how to ask questions? Not really. And, and I think, you know, related to both of what you've said, I think sometimes there is a very, very unsatisfying answer, which is the data you have cannot always answer the question you want to answer or think you want to answer. And, you know, especially as a reviewer of papers, I sometimes have to say this in a review and, you know, they've already done a whole study and they already have a paper that they've submitted. And for me to say like, I don't actually think you can do that. Or I don't actually think you can answer what you think you're answering is a very difficult thing to say to someone at that point. I wish we could do a better mm -hmm. job exactly like you're saying of, of heading people off before they spend two years working on this paper that ended up with an answer that I don't think actually makes any sense at all. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, because for a lot of people understanding like the stats and the math of it is really hard, we tend to focus a lot on that. And I think we leave people with this impression that if you get a number, that number has a meaning. Yeah. And that is unfortunately not always true. You can get all kinds of numbers that just mean nothing except 
waste of your time. <laughs> and so I think, you know, there's the kind of answer when you t- tell people like, you can't do this with your data. They don't understand what that means because they got a number. And if I can't do it, how did I get a number? And it's like, okay, but that number has nothing to do with what you were trying to do. It's just, that's just a number that appeared and it's not related to what your goal was. And we don't spend enough time, I think, helping people understand that, that just because you have a number doesn't mean that you have an answer. That's a great point. And so that's actually all we have time to talk about today. Um, but Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. I really learned a lot chatting with you today. So so thank you. It's great to be here. Just to, to wrap up, for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in December of this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which has great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at http://epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening today and look forward um, to sharing this episode and our next one coming up next month. Thank you.